Morning, friends. Great to see you this morning. So glad to have you here with us. Gentlemen, you've done a fine job getting your families ready. They're all clothed and look good. I realize that's a, more of a challenge for some of you than all of you, but uh, good job. Glad to see you ladies here, especially today as we're down uh, with the ladies at the retreat. I want to say thank you to Pastor Brian for filling in the last two Sundays. I hope you enjoyed his sermons on Job. They were especially convicting for me, and I found them very helpful. So, Brian, thank you for your messages. Let me invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 10 uh, and resume our series on the Gospel of Mark. Remember, we're in the middle section of Mark, um, the section where Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and he is uh, almost there. We'll find him arriving there in uh, chapter 11. Uh, but we're still in chapter 10 this morning in verses 35 to 45, so please find that in uh, your copy of God's Word, and allow me to uh, read our passage before we begin today. Hear the Word of God. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. God's inerrant and authoritative word. Let's pray and ask for his help as we look into these verses before us. Father, we're grateful for... Uh, your word, your truth that you have breathed out through the apostles and prophets that speaks to us uh, this morning. I pray that we would hear your voice clearly through these verses, that we would hear the truth and that we would press it in to our hearts, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would be changed people. Uh, I pray for the gracious operation of your spirit 
that he would open our ears and eyes to your word as it sits before us today. Help us, O oh God. Help me to preach clearly and strengthen my voice uh, today. And Father, be with each one of us. We ask through Christ. Amen. In the most recent issue of World Magazine, it's actually dated yesterday, uh, there's an article called The Mainline Slide, and it describes how North Point Community Church in Alpharetta held a conference at the end of September for parents, ministry leaders, and counselors who want to love and support the LGBTQ plus community well. The event's 14 speakers included Andy Stanley, North Point's founder and senior pastor, as well as two men, Justin Lee and Brian Netzel, who are married to other men. Lee believes God blesses same-sex marriages, and Netzel co-founded Renovus, a nonprofit that aims to create a world where no one has to choose between their faith and sexual orientation. The conference was billed as an approach to supporting parents and their gay and transgender children in churches from the quieter middle space. But within evangelicalism, that space is one in which ministry leaders either subtly or blatantly assert that homosexuality and, trans and transgenderism are compatible with Christianity. It is also a space that is growing fast. But the Word of God says something completely different. The Word of God has this to say. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's this underlined phrase in Romans 12.2 that I want you to notice in particular. Uh, several years ago, a British pastor translated this phrase, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But it seems to me that this is exactly what's happening at North Point Community Church. And from this article in World Magazine, it appears that they have conformed to the world. In case you were wondering, the Bible still says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination from Leviticus 18.22. But of course, you remember that Andy Stanley is the one who told us we need to unhinge our faith from the Old Testament. And it seems more likely that we need to unhinge our faith from Andy Stanley. Well, something similar to this takes place in our passage today. It will become obvious, uh, in spite of what Jesus has taught them, that the disciples have conformed to the world's way of thinking. The world has squeezed them into its mold. As a follower of Christ, whose way of thinking do you follow? Has the world squeezed you into its mold to think and act like they do? Or does your life conform to the pattern that Jesus Christ left us in his word? 
How do we avoid this as a church family? And how do we avoid the squeeze? And how do you and I as individual followers of Christ prevent the world from squeezing us into its mold? That's what we're investigating today. I believe we'll find the answer in the verses that are before us. There are two parts to our passage, to our account. The first part is from verse uh, 35 through 40. And here we'll see disciples conformed to the world, squeezed into the world's mold. And then in verses 41 through 45, we'll hear the summons to be conformed to Christ instead. So beginning with this first part of our passage, um, we see the disciples conformed to the world. Uh, James and John, assuming that Jesus' kingdom would soon be revealed, ask for positions of honor next to Jesus' throne. There are three things I want to point out to you about uh, their conformity. The first is a request for position they make a rather dishonorable request for positions of honor. Verse 35 says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now that strikes me as rather suspicious. Uh, this is the kind of request that our children make right before they ask for something that's very expensive or something they know that we'll say no to, like me asking for a mini bike when I was in junior high, which I always got the answer no to. This is a very roundabout way for James and John to make their request. They're essentially asking Jesus for a blank check. Uh, Lord, do make promise to do whatever we ask. The railroad request comes uh, in verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They view the kingdom as imminent, as ready to take place, even though Jesus has warned them about his suffering and death that will come first. Jewish culture at that time viewed the center position as the place of highest honor. At least James and John got this right. Uh, they acknowledged that as God's anointed king, Jesus deserved this place of supreme honor and authority. But in addition to the place of highest honor, culture of that day regarded the right hand or to you, the right hand and the left hand, as the next two positions of honor. So again, believing Christ's kingdom would come immediately, and with Christ in the center and in the place of highest honor, James and John are asking for positions two and three in Christ's kingdom. Of all God's people who had gone before them, like Abraham, and Moses, and King David, James and John believe that they deserve second and third place right below Christ. The phrase delusions of grandeur comes to mind here. 
Jesus had just foretold his suffering in the paragraph right above this. And this was the third time he had done so. And just like the, the first two times, we again find the disciples reacting poorly. You, you recall after the first announcement, that's when Peter comes up to Jesus and begins to rebuke him and says, Not so, Lord. Uh, this will never happen to you. I believe it's Matthew that puts those words in Peter's mouth. And you remember Christ's response, don't you? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then after the second announcement of his death, we find the twelve immediately arguing on the, on the way about which one of them was the greatest. And here again, uh, we see for the third time what's really in the hearts of the disciples. Their hearts are still preoccupied with their prestige, their position, their glory, and not the glory of God. So first, we see this request for position. James and John reveal that they're after the same thing the culture around them was after. Um, positions of honor and prestige. Thinking like the world thinks. And in this way, they were conformed to the world. The second thing I want you to notice here is the patience of Christ. Christ demonstrates profound patience toward these two wrong-headed disciples. Uh, verse 38, um, excuse me, it's not verse 38. Uh, yes, it is. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. I, I hear in this reply of Jesus, uh, the grace of God simply spilling over from these words. James and John really had no idea what they were asking. They were they were clueless. Their request was entirely self-centered and self-serving. But instead of a stern rebuke um, for their insensitivity, all Jesus says is, you have no idea what's involved in your request. He goes on to say, uh, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Uh, in the Old Testament, the cup was a figure of speech for what God had determined ahead of time for someone. Uh, the cup often referred to the judgment of God uh, that he had appointed. And we see it used this way in Psalm 75. Uh, Asaph writes, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It can refer to judgment. But the cup can also refer to suffering that God sometimes orders for his people. And we hear Jesus use it this way to refer to his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And during his arrest, Christ says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So when Jesus asked 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? He's referring to the cup of suffering appointed for him by the Father. And then going further, he says in, in verse 38, there at the end, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What kind of baptism is he talking about? Probably making a, a reference to John's baptism that James and John would be familiar with and creating a new figure of speech. Just as John the Baptist plunged people into the Jordan River, just as John immersed people in the water, so Jesus was about to be plunged into suffering and death, immersed in a flood of sorrows on behalf of God's people. And there's one more thing about this reply of Christ that I want you to note of, take note of. The way he structures the question, uh, he's expecting the answer, no. No. In other words, he'd be asking, you're not able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized, are you? You guys can't follow through with this, can you? He does not get the answer he expects as uh, verse 39 begins. And they said to him, we are able. And you can just hear the chippiness in their voice. I, I can hear it at least. Well, of course, Lord, we're sufficient for this task. We are able to face the same kind of suffering. Yes, we can do it. And yet, like all the others, James and John also abandoned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest. If you were to ask this question to the Apostle Paul, he would have given a completely different answer. He would have answered uh, in the negative uh, when, as he describes the privileges of his ministry. Uh, Imagining this question, are you able? Paul replies like this, who is sufficient for these things? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. A British pastor named J.C. Ryle said this, let us not, like James and John, be overconfident in our own strength and forward in professing that we can do anything that Christ requires. Let us, in short, beware of a boastful spirit when we first begin to run the Christian course. If we remember this, it may save us from a humbling fall. But to this... Uh, overly enthusiastic attitude, we see the patience of Jesus towards these men in his reply. You have no idea what you're asking. There's one more thing I want to point out in this uh, first part of our passage, and that is uh, the prerogative. Uh, Jesus informs James and John that the right to assign those places of honor belongs only to God the Father. And we're in the middle of verse 49, uh, 39, rather. Uh, and Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. 
And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. First, he informs them that they would indeed suffer in a way similar to him. They too would face persecution and suffering for his name. But verse 40 continues, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The privilege of assigning seats of honor, the prerogative of assigning positions of power and authority in Christ's kingdom belong to God the Father and no one else. And, and those seats of honor had in fact already been assigned by the Father. Jesus says, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And here we see just how, how far out of line James and John were. They were guilty of, of overreach, of requesting places of honor for themselves that only God the Father had the right to assign. It was his prerogative to assign places of honor in Christ's kingdom. So first we see these two disciples with minds that are conformed to the world, uh, wanting exactly what the culture around them wanted, position, prestige, uh, power, um, just as uh, you would see in Jewish culture at that time. The world has squeezed them into its mold. They have conformed to the world. Well, as we go on to the second part of our passage, we discover a marked contrast to this. Instead of being conformed to the world, uh, his disciples are charged to be conformed to Christ. And here Jesus charges the twelve not to imitate the world, but to imitate him. And again, I'm going to point out three things in this part as well. The first thing we see in here is the summons. Jesus summons the twelve for a decisive lesson. Look at verse 41 in your Bible. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. What's the cause of their anger? Why do the remaining ten become angry with James and John? Well, Bible scholars agree that it's not because they're of pure motives, that they are uh, righteous in their thinking and James and John are not. Uh, scholars unanimous are unanimous uh, that they become angry uh, because James and John have simply beat them to the punch. They would have gone up to Jesus uh, and asked for positions two and three had they gotten there ahead of them. Uh, they all wanted glory and honor and authorities uh, sitting beside Jesus. And consider that of the inner three disciples, James, Peter, and John, Peter is completely thrown under the bus and left out of the picture. Uh, forget about Peter. Because if we ask Peter, we'll have to ask his brother Andrew too. And we don't want to be in four places of honor, just two and three. So John, let's just you and me go. Well, here is 
the desire for glory raising its ugly head yet again. And so Jesus summons them, doesn't just call them, summons them together in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, that's a phrase that Mark uses. Uh, he uses it nine times. And it always precedes a significant pronouncement from Christ. Jesus is about to make a decisive statement. Uh, Jesus calls to, calls to them. And, and he, he needs to teach them yet again that their worldly attitude is incompatible with the kingdom of God and it needs to be corrected. So he summons them for instruction. Then beyond the summons, the second thing we see here is the subjection from worldly leaders. Worldly leaders dominate and subject those under them. And we find this toward the middle of verse 42, where Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That beginning phrase, you know that, um, it, these are, Jesus is simply stating common knowledge. Uh, sometimes we say, well, everybody knows Everybody knows what politicians are like. And this is a similar ring to it. These are facts widely known to be true. Everybody knows what worldly leaders do. And what do they do? Jesus says first that they lord it over them. They lord it over them. That means these rulers gain mastery or power over their subjects. They are act in an autocratic and oppressive manner. They subdue the people under them. There is submission, but it's submission that comes with a heel on the back of the neck. And in the next phrase, Jesus says that their great ones exercise authority, meaning almost the same thing. They, they rule their subjects in an unfavorable way. And this, Jesus says, is what secular leaders are like. They're tyrants, and everybody knows it. And with your desires for honor and power, this is who you're acting like. This is who you're thinking like. You want power in my kingdom and seats of honor so that you can dominate others just like worldly leaders do. You want to be just like them. The second thing we see is the subjugation that typically comes uh, from a worldly leader, the subjection. And then we see, thirdly, the servant. Servant should be capitalized here. The disciples must not act like worldly leaders, but like the servant of the Lord. Don't model yourselves on those men. Model yourselves on me, Jesus says. Notice verse 43 in your Bible. But it shall not be so among you. Or, but it is not so among you. 
In other words, worldly leadership must never be seen among you. You will not exercise leadership like this in my church, Christ says. Peter at least remembers this lesson because he repeats it to other men who lead the church, which is elders. Addressing these men in 1 Peter 5, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge or not lording it over them as it's the same word our passage uses. The same words that just came out of Jesus' mouth. Uh, you will not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock, which is what Jesus is about to say. On the contrary, this is what your leadership must be like. In the middle of verse 43, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, must be a diakonos. It's the term where we eventually get the word deacon from. But literally and originally it meant, it referred to one who waited on tables. Do you want to be great? Then you clear the dishes at your house. And after you've done that, just go ahead and do the dishes. I don't like to do the dishes, but I do them. And why do I do them? I do it to serve my wife. Because God wants me to. You want to be great men? Wait tables. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I mean, who doesn't want to aim for the top, right? We're number one. What's the way to number one? Become less than a servant. Become the bottom rung on the ladder. A household slave. Who, who are even underneath the, the ones who wait on tables. Become a servant. No, no. Become a slave. Of all. That's what your leadership should be like. Not all this pushing and shoving. None of that. That will not be, um, uh, uh, must not be, uh, must not be so among you. But why? Why is this teaching so decisive and important for the twelve? 
Why is it so vital that they don't model themselves after the world? Well, Jesus goes on to tell them why. He goes on to give the reason. As you note, verse 45 begins with the word for. Look what it says. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This this could be a whole sermon in itself, and I'm not going to do that this morning. That'll wait for another time. But look at his title that he uses. For even the Son of Man. And it's mistakenly thought that this refers to Jesus as the ultimate human. But it's not a reference to his humanity. It's a reference to his supremacy. It's borrowed from Daniel chapter 7. And since you might not have that on the tip of your tongue, I'm going to just remind you of what Daniel 7 says. And the title of this in my Bible says, The Son of Man has given dominion. And Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Ancient of Days is a reference to God the Father. And to him, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what he means by the Son of Man. That is a title of power and authority and sovereignty. Uh, it, it expresses uh, the deity of Jesus. And here Jesus says, even the Son of Man, even the one who deserves every accolade he receives, even the one who's worthy of all worship and, uni- and adoration in the universe, even the one who's given dominion over every kingdom and nation on earth, Even the Son of Man came not to be served as he deserves to be, but to serve those who least deserve it and lay down his life as the payment, the ransom, the price paid to release a slave or captive. This, men, is why, speaking to his disciples, this, men, is why you must not be conformed to the world and why you must not imitate worldly leaders because I, your Lord and Savior, I, the Son of Man, came to serve my sheep and to die as their substitute. Don't conform to the world. Conform to me and to you and me. The charge Christ gives us from these verses is don't conform to the world. Conform to Christ. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. Uh, Allow Jesus to squeeze you instead into his mold.
This is the very thing that God's word calls us to in Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Just take note of, of what God is doing in your life and in the lives of your fellow believers. He is conforming you to the image of his Son. Chipping away at that rough block of marble until he finds the image of his Son in the stone. The third thing we see is the servant. Capital S, servant. Jesus' disciples must not conform to the world, but conformed to Christ, the servant of the Lord. He summons the twelve. He reminds them of the subjection that Gentile rulers exert over their subjects. And third, he calls them to model their lives after him. So how do we avoid the squeeze? Both as a church body, as an individual. How will you avoid the squeeze? How will you keep the world from squeezing you into its mold? You've got to understand the world is squeezing all the time. It never lets up. It is breathing constant messages to us. We prevent ourselves from being squeezed, or whatever the past tense of that word is, uh, by not conforming to the world, but instead conforming ourselves to Christ. We don't imitate the disciples conformed to the world. We imitate Jesus, the servant of the Lord, who did not come to be served, but to serve. Early I sh earlier I showed you Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. And this is essentially the message of our passage, be conformed to Christ. How do we do that? How do we, uh, what particular things do we put into practice? Well, I think this verse goes on to tell us exactly how we do that. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We are not able to walk with Christ, be on the way with him as his disciples were. But the way that we walk with Christ now is through the word of Christ. And you'll recall Colossians 3.16, or you will now, let the word of Christ richly dwell among you. If you watch a football game this afternoon, the world is streaming its message into your brain through commercials, through what people say, the stupid things you'll hear on TV this afternoon from 
sportscasters, and etc. If you listen to music on the way home, depending on what it is, the world will be streaming its messes at you, calling you to conform, and, and trying to squeeze you. It, it's around us all the time. And apparently even from churches that are in our backyard, we, we hear the world squeezing the church. And the way we avoid that is by allowing our minds to be renewed by the word of God. Yeah, I agree. We, we love those and are called to love those in the LGB, whatever, community. Never at the expense of truth. This must be in our minds. And this is why you need to be reading this. This is why we all need to be in the word constantly. is so that the word renews us uh, strengthens us spiritually. Look, you cannot neglect this, my friend. Uh, go ahead and skip lunch today. I mean, just do it. Forget about your hunger pangs. You can, you'll live. No, I won't, in fact. I will be grouchy by three, and you won't want to live with me. You wouldn't dream of missing lunch today. You wouldn't think of it. But yet we can go days at a time without feeding ourselves from this. When was the last time? When was the last time you were here? We avoid being squeezed by being transformed by the renewal of our mind. And when the world tries to squeeze, we can push back against that squeeze and say, no, that's not right. That's not what the word of God has to say. That is flat out wrong. But how will you do that if your mind is not informed and transformed by his word? That, I believe, is the primary way that we avoid the squeeze. Fellowship with each other is another way we avoid the squeeze. Uh, encouraging each other, challenging each other. When we see our friend start to waffle in his thoughts on a particular subject, uh, the one word reply is what's needed. Dude. Dude. Um, which has a lot of meaning if you stop and think about it. What are you thinking? Come on, man. That's not right. Fellowship is another way we avoid the squeeze. Well, let me pray for us and we'll conclude today. Father, uh, I pray you'd use your word in our hearts and lives uh, to transform the way we think. Without realizing it, our thinking has been profoundly influenced by the world around us. Please renew our minds. Please uh, uh, help the word to sink down deeply in us so that we can avoid the squeeze uh, when it comes, so that we won't be conformed 
to what the world thinks. Jesus, please do this in our hearts by your good spirit who dwells within us. We pray, Savior, in your name. Amen.